Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding product market fit is kind of like the uh, holy grail for a startup because if you've got product market fit, then people start to talk about it. Spread the word about your product for you. So they're effectively becoming your marketers. If you don't have product market fit, you know, people aren't going to share what you're doing. They probably won't even pay you for what you're doing. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Every company was a startup at one stage or another. It's a world of innovation, disruption, and opportunity. It's also a world of risk and reward. My guest today is Tom Britton, the co-founder of Syndicate Room, a fund that invests in highly ambitious startups. Hello, Tom. Hello. Good morning. Or afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Evening, somewhere in the world. So, Tom, you grew up in Los Angeles, and thanks to your Scottish-born father, you were always interested in trying to make a career out of playing football, or other people might know it as soccer, but real fans call it football, obviously. And uh, you moved to Edinburgh in 2006 to pursue this goal and played in the lower leagues for three years, during which you added two league titles to your collection. So, Tom, on a scale of one to Maradona, where were you? (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe a two <laughs> if we're talking about the legend i was a defender so i was uh, i like to tackle people but in terms of ball control and skill not necessarily my strength <laughs> ah, the beautiful game so tom <laughs> you completed an mba at cambridge um, was that before or after your footballing career or soccer it was a few uh, years after. So I was in Edinburgh playing football in the lower leagues, obviously not making a lot of money doing it. So I had a, a job working for a company called The Train Line. Um, and after a few years of working at The Train Line, I realized that I wanted to start my own business. And being American, I thought, you know what, to start my own business, I need an MBA, which is absolutely not true. But you know, it was the thought in my head. So uh, I left The Train Line and went to Cambridge to do my MBA. Syndicate Room is involved in startups. It's a fund for startups. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And so anyone can um, invest in Syndicate Room to gain exposure to startup companies. Yeah. The way we structure it is as a fund vehicle. So anyone who comes in and invests, the minimum investment being £5,000. So it's not so easy to get into. But anyone who comes in and invests £5,000 then is effectively built a portfolio of a minimum of 50, 50 um, early stage companies that we've invested into. So what's attracted you to the world of startups? You know what? That's a great question. It was actually during my time working at the train line. So when I joined the train line, it was going through what I would call its scale-up phase. It had been a startup. It had been going for about three or four years, and it was starting to really hit growth. I mean, I joined right at that time where I still got to experience uh, a bit of life as a startup, but also what it was like to take a, a small business and make it big. And I, I kind of got a bug for it. So a lot of the process was solving problems, speaking to customers, figuring out what they need, being a product manager. And to be honest, I really enjoyed that interaction with the customers and trying to sit down and work out how to solve whatever problem it was that they were facing with the train lines website or mobile apps. 
Yeah, it's a golden era for startups, isn't it? Uh, I mean, <laughs> there's a couple of businesses that I deal with in terms of this podcast and their startups, and you end up talking to the co-founder on the help desk. It's that kind of scale of, of operation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a good good era, golden era, as you've called it for startups. So there's a lot of impressive startups and scale-ups that are really taking on kind of the established players, primarily in you know financial technology or fintech and bio and life sciences. I mean, if you look at, you know, with the COVID vaccine, Moderna, and, and some of the other players that have produced these vaccines quite quickly, a few years ago, nobody had ever heard of them. And it was just two, three, four people uh, working in a laboratory on some new technology with mRNA. And now they're multi-billion pound companies. So quite a success story in that sense. But no one had ever heard of them two or three years ago. And it's fascinating to see how they've scaled up that quickly. They were a um, husband and wife team, weren't they? That, they uh, were. Came with them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A husband and wife team, you know, I'm glad it worked for them. They're still together and obviously quite wealthy now. <laughs> so good on them. And they've, they've, of course, helped us alleviate the stresses of this pandemic. But I've heard some stories about it not always working out with husband and wife teams and the split in both company and, you know, marriage doesn't end well, but so be it. <laughs> well, the world of startup would be very stressful. But uh... yes. My next question was to ask you to describe a typical startup, but of course there is no typical startup, is there? Because we're talking about companies that are involved in fintech and biotech, and they're completely different business models, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, different business models, different industries, different setup of founding teams. So there's there's a lot of advice out there about, oh, you know, you should have two co-founders and you should have one being technical minded and one being more business minded. It doesn't always work out that way. And if you look at some of the companies now, like Klarna was a company big on in the fintech space in Europe. I think there's four founders. I spoke with a company the other day that had eight co-founders and they were doing quite well. There is general advice that you could listen to, but actually what you have to find out is what's right for the business and what works for you. Although I do think if you have too many founders, it leads to too many chefs and that can create problems on the direction of the company. But as long as everyone's pulling together in the same direction, then it can actually work wonders. And of course, with different industry sectors, there's going to be different time horizons, like a biotech company. I believe you're looking at 12 to 15 years between startup and um, the final, hopefully possible success. Is that correct? Or, or longer in some cases. So, you know, bio life sciences and pharma companies have a lot of regulatory hoops to jump through. And depending upon where they're trying to deliver their products, that can be multiple regulatory approvals in multiple geographies so you know the US with like the FDA and, and elsewhere and so typically it takes a bio life science pharma company a bit longer to create the product test the product and then put it through all the different trials generally you know the first one or the first many that they come out with don't work out so then they have to go through the the process again and it can be you know 20 plus years before the initial investors see a return whereas you know with a a SaaS business or software as a service company, for those that aren't familiar with the term, um, you can create a bit of software in a weekend. You could start to sell it you know, the next week. And if it's a popular bit of software and it's getting traction, you could see an exit for that company in a matter of years. We've had a company that we invested into that was uh, sold within two years from the time that we invested, which is completely out of the ordinary, but it can happen. What we typically say with our fund is to approach it as a 10-year horizon. So don't expect to get anything back for 10 years. If things start to come back before then, well, that's a bonus. But realistically, it's a, it's a very long-term play. And it's a very illiquid play as well. 
So when you're investing in startups, there's no market that you can trade the shares on. You've bought the shares and you're effectively waiting for the company to either sell out or list on a market or go bust, which is how it works with startups. Can you give us a bit more of a, a description of a SaaS company, a software as service company? They typically don't have a lot of revenue. Well, they do have revenue, but um, a lot of costs in the first instance, and they spend a lot of time, effort, and money in developing their market. Is that how it works with a, um, a startup SaaS kind of company? Well, I'll give you a bit of a history on that side of things. So you know, if you go back into the 90s, well, 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, you'll remember, I'll remember, you would buy a bit of software on a CD. <laughs> so you would pay you know, <laughs> yes. 60 pounds or $100, whatever it was for Microsoft Excel, <laughs> for example. And you pay that one-off fee and you've got the CD and you load it up onto your computer and boom, you've got Excel on your computer. Well, that's a big upfront cost for a lot of people, um, but it also is a one-time revenue option for Microsoft. If they want to get more revenue out of you, you have to buy the upgraded version in a few year times. And again, it's a, a one-off cost. Well, there are some uh, clever individuals who came up with this software as a service model where instead of buying a CD or downloading off the internet at a one-time cost that might be high, they're effectively licensing you the software for a period of time, whether or not you sign up for a month, six months, or a year. So software as a service is the ability to use that software for a period of time. That's the service, writing you with that software. And for the companies, what it means is that you're getting recurring revenue. So instead of getting a one-off and hoping that the people do it again in a few years' time, you're effectively giving them the software at a cheaper cost per month, or almost like leasing it to them, and getting this constant flow of revenue in. So that's part one. <laughs> no, that's great. This is a this is a really great explanation. I think listeners would be really interested to hear about the business models for these kind of companies. Well, I'll keep going then. <laughs> With these uh, software companies, oftentimes there is a big upfront cost to them of producing the software. Um, however, in the last five or six years, the cost of writing code has gone down. So yeah, that upfront cost is kind of going away. And what you see is these companies develop a prototype or an MVP, a minimum viable product of their software. And they launch that MVP out to the audience to get reception, you know, to get feedback on it. So typically they'll put the prototype out there for free or at a very low cost. They'll let people try it, they'll get feedback from it, and then they'll develop it further. And they'll iterate, they'll do that process many, many times. And by the end of it, what you have is the final product. Well, never final, because they're constantly updating it, but a product that people like, that people are buying and paying you know, anywhere from $3 a month to, in some cases, uh, with like Adobe software, you could be paying 120 a month for the full Adobe suite. So the, the model is, it works for both parties. It allows the software developers to get something out and start to get revenue in quicker, and also to start to iterate, because as the revenues come in, they can hire more people, they can develop it a little bit further, make it a bit better, maybe put the price up a little bit. It's quite an interesting model, and I think it works quite well from the revenue side of it, because one, you're getting revenue in earlier, but two, you also see a smoother revenue trend. So you're not just getting big lumps of revenue coming in at a certain point in time, say, when everyone's going back to school and they need to add word to their computers. You're getting it throughout the year, 
So you kind of get this more flatline revenue that's predictable. It's easier to do the accounting side of it. A guest described this kind of change as being the difference between a 21st century business and a 20th century business. In the 20th century, you would build a factory and there was a huge capital investment in that factory, which had to be recouped over a long number of years. Whereas now, once you've got your digital factory in place, the revenue can just keep recurring and keep recurring and the cost of that um, initial investment in relative terms goes right down. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, in the 21st century, as a software developer, you can plug in a lot of tools to what you're doing. So, you know, you go back 15 years, you're building your own payment gateway, you're building your own front end, you're building your own accounting system. Now as a startup, okay, you plug in zero as your accounting, you plug in Stripe as your payment gateway, and you're using WordPress or Joomla or some other front end, you really haven't done that much coding. You've just kind of plugged these different things together. And lo and behold, you've got a fully functional e-commerce website where you're selling whatever goods or services that you provide. It's quite incredible. And I said before, you could get a website up in a day, you could have a shop you know, front open in a day or two and selling products on Day three, that's no lie. You can do it with all the tools that are out there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So Syndicate Room is mainly involved in fintechs and biotechs. Are there any other sectors that you cover as well? Yeah, we look at everything. So our fund is a co-investment fund. And the data that sits behind our fund is more on the people that we co-invest with. So we spent about two years pulling all the data in on the UK market, primarily from what's called Companies House, which is where all companies have to do their reporting and filing. They have this API. We took apart this API. We looked at all the data on the UK market going back about 10 years, and we built this index of the startup market in the UK. And we started to run analysis on top of it, looking for trends and patterns that we could latch onto that might give us an edge in the market much like an ETF would in a publicly traded market where you know, you're getting a basket of goods or products, stocks in this instance, and you kind of trend on that basket of stocks. Our fund is very much trending on angel investors, startup investors, who for the last at least five years have outperformed the market. So we're talking about people who are getting at a minimum kind of 30% year-on-year growth in their portfolio of startups. You're talking about investors here, not companies. These are people who you can track their investing style, methodology? Yeah, their pattern, really. So we look at kind of the sectors that they invest in, the amounts they typically invest in a company, and at what valuation and stage they typically go in. It's a loose pattern matching on their behavior. Um, And what happens is, okay, we know what they've done over the last five to 10 years. Now we've partnered with them. So we reached out to them and said, look, we've got this new fund we're putting together. We want to co-invest when you go in early on on your next business. And they've said, okay, that's great. So they send us the company, they make an introduction, and they let us know how much they're going to be investing at what valuation. And then we look at that and we 
figure out if it fits within their pattern. So does the sector, is it one that they understand well? Is it an evaluation that fits within the range they typically invest at? And is the amount, the typical amount for that valuation that they go in on? And if that all matches up, we then look at the company from a legal and structural perspective to make sure there's there's nothing dodgy there or none of the founders have any bad press or you know <laughs> got into trouble with the law. And effectively, we don't try and renegotiate the deal because the angel has done it and it's fit within their pattern, but we're just making sure that legally and structurally the investment is good. And if it is, then we go in. So it's a very, very diverse play. We've got about 50 of these angels that we co-invest with, and we look to do between 50 and 60 investments per year. So it is very diverse in that sense. And it is very sector agnostic because the angels, some of them know life sciences, some of them know fintech, some of them know enterprise SaaS businesses, some of them know bricks and mortar. So we have a few that invest in early restaurant chains that they think will do well. And we have some that invest in property tech and social impact and you you name it, it probably fits within the remit of one of these angels. What are the growth stages that you see in startup companies and at which stage are you investing? Yeah, so I'll allude to kind of what we see in the UK because in the US, everything is kind of bigger and bolder. Brighter and more lurid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you've kind of got the startup stage where the company's really just getting off the ground. It's you know, one man and his dog or a few people working on the product. And after, you know, a year or two, they've raised a little bit of capital. They've got a little bit of traction and then they go out to raise another round. And after that next round, which, you know, maybe a seed round or maybe a series A, if they've had good traction, they hire a few more people. So now they're 10 to 20 people. They're slowly starting to scale up, if you will. If they continue to do well and they're hiring people, they hit a point where they're you know, say a hundred people, they're kind of an established scale up. So they're still scaling up, but they're not quite established. And then at a certain point in time, they kind of hit close to revenue break even. They've got however many people they need to get and they become an established company. But within those stages, you've got your seed stage, your startup stage, you've got your series A round, your scale up stage, and then your established phase or growth phase. People call it different things. You know, here it's like you raise your seed round of capital and you're a startup and you're raising 150 grand and then you raise your series a which is a million and you're a scale-up in the u.s you raise a million and that's kind of like your pre-seed round or your seed round it's just a very different scale and if you look back on like say facebook facebook was still considered a startup after eight years when they were worth over a billion dollars and people were still calling it a startup and it's like okay i think these these terms are quite mercurial you know they're kind of interchangeable but you know, seed, scale up, growth, established are probably the four phases that you can get away with saying, and people would kind of get it. So can you give us some examples of companies that have done well and others that have done not so well? No names or Pactrill, of course. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess I don't mind talking about our portfolio a little bit because we're quite open about it. So we've got a, a company that we invested in little more than a year ago called Trade Ledger. They provide loan book management software to financial institutions. So it's a very like enterprise play, SaaS play. So when you say enterprise, that means big corporations are going to be using it. It's not like a fair, your small business. It's uh, for larger scale operations. Correct. Correct. So they target financial institutions, banks, primarily lenders in particular. 
And they've got a, a nice model where they, they sell their software into the large enterprise and each customer that signs up pays them a lot of money because it's you know an enterprise and they're using it to do a lot for them. So when we, we got involved, they're raising a smaller round on a valuation that I think was around 10 million. And they're just now raising 15 million pounds from some US VCs coming in that'll value the company at closer to 40 million. They spent a lot of time getting the product right and testing it. A lot of time also selling the product because a lot of startup land is sales. If you don't get sales and marketing right, well, it doesn't matter how good your product is, people aren't going to find it and they're not going to buy it. So they spent all this time and now they're starting to get traction. And you know, for us, that looks like it's a multiple return, multiple X return, because when we got in, the valuation was, I think it was 10 or 50 million, and now it's getting closer to 40. And that's almost a 3X growth for us in the matter of about 12 months, which is phenomenal. You know, Hopefully they continue and they become more than, well, hopefully they become a billion dollar company because that would <laughs> make all of our investors a lot of return. But they seem to be getting it right and they're hiring senior people now. I think if we go back to the last question, that's probably another indicator that a company is entering their scale-up phase from being a startup. They start to hire more senior people who have experience in the industry with one of the kind of established players who can then come into the startup and help them navigate that industry. So Trade Ledger is one that's doing really well. We're excited they're in the portfolio and that they've got these U.S. investors on board who will hopefully help them break into the U.S. market. That's fantastic. We also had a company, though, called Hop Vietnamese that we invested in about a year ago that was a Vietnamese restaurant chain that was, prior to the pandemic, doing really well. We invested in them a month before the lockdown. <laughs> and unfortunately, that one timing. was exactly timing. It was all about timing with them. And you know, we didn't foresee what was going to happen, obviously. But with some startups, you just don't know what's going to happen with the timing and something can come out of left field or right field, whichever field you think is the bad field. <laughs> and they kind of got sideswept by the pandemic. They put a lot of people on furlough initially, but ultimately what it came down to was being able to pay the, the rents and they just couldn't do it. So they had to go into liquidation, which is a bit of a shame because they did have a solid uh, model and you know the food was quite good. I'd, <laughs> I'd eaten at it a few times when I was in London, uh, one of the chains, but it just didn't work out. So that happens. You know, oftentimes with companies going bust, the joke is that they went bust because they ran out of money. Of course, they ran out of money. But um, why did they run out of money? And the main reasons are timing. So they were before their time, they were behind their time, or there was a better competitor who had a better product. And finding product market fit is kind of like the uh, holy grail for a startup. Because if you've got product market fit, so the product is right for your market, then people start to talk about it spread the word about your product for you. So they're effectively becoming your marketers. If you don't have product market fit, then you know people aren't going to share what you're doing. They probably won't even pay you for what you're doing. So there's a great article for any of the startups that are listening by Raul Vora, who's the founder of a company called Superhuman. If you look up Raul Vora product market fit, he explains it really well, what it means, what you should be looking for, how to try and see if you have it and what to do if you don't have it. Oh, we'll put a link in the um, the show notes for that as well so people can find it easily. Traditional companies have metrics of value because of the revenue and the money that they're earning and turning over, which just don't exist in startups. How do you approach valuing a startup? 
Yeah, it's a difficult one, <laughs> to be honest. What you're trying to do is figure out what the companies are going to be worth in the future and work back. And you don't have the metrics or the data to be able to do a discounted cash flows because you know the company's got no cash flow. <laughs> and so oftentimes, you know, in that first round, and I hate to say this because most people will be like, no, 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 there's a way of doing it. You're kind of guessing, you're putting a finger in the air and figuring out what you think's right. But also as an angel investor, you're trying to work out what percentage shareholding of the startup you think you should own at that stage and how much you can invest and working that way. So in a typical first round, if you're an angel and you're investing 10 grand into a company and you want to own 5% of the company, well, that means that after you've invested, the company needs to be worth 200,000. So your shareholding is 5%. And if you think that's right, because you're going to, as an angel, get involved in the company and give them advice and maybe be on their board and help them grow, then that's what you would argue for. And the company could say, look, like we think we're worth more than this because the market is huge and this and that. But in reality, if they don't have any traction, if they don't really have anything more than an idea on paper, you can't value it at much higher than that. But once the startup gets going and you start to see the traction and you start to see the founder's ability to deliver on what they've promised, so here's the business plan and we've hit all these milestones, then you can start to take in a bit more on the metrics. So how many people do you have signed up? What does your growth rate look like? And use that for a basis. I think the other way of doing it, though, is trying to find comparables. Like, you know, if you were in fintech and you're working in the payment space and you know that so-and-so last year or the year before raised their seed round at this valuation, then you might say, okay, well, they raised it at that valuation. So we're going to try and raise at a similar valuation. I think the truth is, though, it's a lot of guesswork early on. A wet finger in the sky. Yeah, a little bit. It's when you start to see the traction, then you can adjust it for that traction. So what's the process with these companies? I mean, eventually, presumably, they are going to IPO onto a share market. What's the process that happens then? Yeah, so there's a few ways a a company can exit. And listing onto a public stock market is one of them. But more often than not, in the spaces that we're at, it's through an acquisition by a larger company. We had a company, I think it was two years ago, that was producing medical devices. They'd been going for a few years and they got bought out by a much larger medical distributor. So kind of a, I won't call them a conglomerate in the typical sense, but a company that bought smaller medical devices and used their existing sales network to sell them out, to sell a product. They got a nice return for investors. Can't disclose the return, actually, it was part of the deal. But the cool thing about that one was that actually the investors that came in early got an initial payout, but they also got additional payouts if the product that the company was developing that got bought delivered more sales to the acquirer um, over a period of time. So it was kind of a performance-based acquisition where as the company that was acquired did well, the people that invested in it earlier got paid more. And I think that was actually quite a good model (laughs) because trying to figure out what a company is worth when you're buying them out early is also a bit of guesswork on what you think they'll be worth to you in the future and how much value they add to you through that acquisition. So this company that distributes the devices said, look, like we'll pay you kind of what it's worth right now. But we know that's not a huge amount more than you invested in. So what we'll do is, if we are able to really ramp up sales of this product, we'll give you a bit more. And that was part of the deal that 
made investors go, okay, look, like we'll take that deal. Because if you didn't give that, then at the price you were offering right now, we wouldn't sell the business. What's the term EIS? I've seen that um, term a lot in the startup area. Yeah, EIS is a tax relief that the UK government offers to early stage investors for taking the risk of backing startups so early in the game. Because obviously, when you're investing in a startup, the most likely outcome is that the startup goes bust. <laughs> you know, So the early investors will lose their money on that particular startup. Okay, so how can investors and startup founders um, find you and get some more information? Yeah, quite easily. Just come to the website, www.syndicateroom.com. We have a chat functionality, which operates from kind of nine to five, Monday to Friday. So you can chat with us online or you can drop us an email. Um, the best email is investor.relations at syndicateroom.com. Or if you're a company that is based in the UK and looking to raise capital, send us an email on companies at syndicateroom.com and one of our analysts will get back to you. Tom Britton, thank you very much for joining us. Phil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. <laughs>